Hi, I'm Zachary Fall. I'm Nadia Cavell. And I'm Ben Weaver Hinks. And you're listening to Migratives, the podcast championing migrant creatives in the UK. Today we speak with Monika Jasrebska Davies, a London based cinematographer and editor originally from Poland. Monika is a member of the BAFTA crew and the BFI network and has had her work selected for festivals, including the London Short Film Festival, Sheffield Dockfest, and Aesthetica. Her debut short, Figure, which was directed and choreographed by Lonre Malaulu, won awards at both the Lights Dance Film Festival and the New Renaissance Film Festival. She spoke with us about editing her own work, her interest in dance and fluid movement, and her experiences as a woman in the UK film industry. Monica, thanks for joining us on Migratives. No, no worries. Thanks for having me. So you are originally from Poland, where you grew up before coming to London. Can you tell us a bit about your childhood there and growing up and studying there? Yeah, sure. I'm from like a middle-sized city in South Poland. It's a really nice place to grow up, actually, because there is a lot of greenery and we had a house right by the forest. So nature is quite a big part of my growing up. Yeah, I went to like, you know, typical normal schools, nothing extraordinary. But yeah, I really enjoyed Polish education, especially the early on education, because it's very broad, like, you know, coming to England and comparing my experience of school to people growing up here was vastly different. So I'm actually really glad that I was able to get the education that I did. Hmm. Yeah, I moved to England when I was, I believe, 18. I moved with my best friend to come to university. And can you tell us a bit more about school and the place of art in school and how that was encouraged? And also maybe the place of art in uh, your family? It's very interesting one, actually, because I don't think artists are particularly appreciated in Poland. It's usually the case where you say that you want to become an artist. Everybody looks at you like, oh, right. So you're kind of going to be poor for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's their sort of approach. I was very lucky that my family is always very welcoming in all my weirdness and my ideas, especially when I was growing up. I went through a phase of a very different ideas of what I want to do in life. While of which was, you know, I was learning Japanese for four years and my parents were like, yeah, okay, cool. If you want to do it, we're going to send you for Japanese then, you know? So <laughs> all my ideas were always really, really encouraged, which I'm, I can be always grateful for. In terms of art, my family doesn't really have any sort of artistic background. But as a kid, I was always interested in like art in one form or another. You know, I was drawing, painting. And I think my parents saw that and started ordering like this painting albums of famous painters and stuff. And that kind of got me into the visual language, I think. And do you remember what got you interested in that kind of art? I don't remember if I'm honest with you. I think it just always came very naturally to me to just, you know, even as a like seven-year-old to just sit there and just like keep drawing endless pages of, you know, crap and just like... I think my family was just always encouraging me to do the artistic side of things, you know, especially like I enjoyed both creative stuff and math and science as well. Mm -hmm. So I was like quite a weird kid who just got on with things, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and do you remember your first experience maybe of live performance? Did you go to theater much growing up or things like that? I do, actually. There is a puppetry theater in my hometown. They're specifically dedicated to children. And they were always very imaginative. And I remember that every year, every couple of years, they were organizing worldwide puppetry festivals. So I remember quite vividly, actually, I think as a kid going for one of those shows, and it was like a Chinese show that didn't have any words in it, but it was very 
visual. And I think that, yeah, going to the theater as a kid got me interested in performance and arts. Now that I analyze it, you know. Yeah, yeah definitely a memory that I have. <laughs> <laughs> and you found ways to express yourself creatively and explore different creative interests at school as well? Yes, you know, I it wasn't encouraged by my school as a thing. It wasn't particularly artistic school in any sort of way. It was very much focused on the hardcore education and, you know, cramming knowledge into our heads. But yeah, I've, I've just had a quite nice relationship with someone who worked in a library and she always encourages and helps students, you know, put up some artworks and that was really nice part of it. But I think with growing up and the fact that a lot of young people don't know which way they want to go, apart from, you know, being a Japanese translator sort of route, mm-hmm. I went into, oh, maybe I'm going to go into illustration. So again, my parents very kindly agreed to send me to um, art drawing classes. <laughs> so that was another thing that I kind of played around with. Then it turned out that actually I wasn't really good enough in terms of, you know, painting and drawing. I was very much a recreative person rather than creative person in terms of mm. painting in particular. But mm. even in the young age, I was very much self-aware of that. So that's why I diverted into another another way of life. <laughs> Thank God for that. I, uh, I understand. I started doing a bit of illustration. I was big on mangas and uh, started doing 3D animation before I realized, okay, I, I need to act and not try to animate those things. I'm not good enough at that. <laughs> <laughs> And out of interest, why Japanese? You know what? I think it's just when you are growing up, you just get hooked up on things and you get obsessed about them. Mm-hmm. And I was the typical example of someone who dive into the Japanese culture of, you know, manga, anime and music and stuff. And then you started growing into a deeper interest in terms of culture and books and stuff. And I just started learning the language and I went to the classes and like I kind of met a lot of nice people there. One of which is the friend I moved to the UK with. But yeah, you kind of became an interest, you know, as a teenager, you kind of need those quite a bit. <laughs> it's so funny because I had a very similar thing. Yeah, I became very big on mangas and animation and took some Japanese courses, went to Tokyo and did like three weeks of Japanese intensive learning there. And nice. it's all gone now. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what about you? I'm the same. I understand a lot. But when it comes to talking... I think I'm missing grammar. I remember the vocabulary in some of the characters, but yeah, grammar I'm definitely missing. It's gone. (laughs) (laughs) So today you work as a cinematographer and editor. You also have experience in lighting design. But did you know that these were the formats you were going to be working with? And when did you know that you were going to pursue an artistic career? (laughs) It's quite a funny one because I had no idea for a very, very long time. I applied for universities in the UK And you know that you can like apply to five different universities. Mm -hmm. And I tailored my application so that I could apply both to business studies and filmmaking, believe it or not, because I still didn't know. (laughs) I just knew that I want to study in the UK. But yeah, I had no idea that I'm going to end up, first of all, in film and second of all, as a cinematographer and editor, it kind of came much, much later after exploring things at the university. Mm. So what was your degree? It was a television and video technology. It was a BSc course, which doesn't really have a lot to do with what I'm doing these days, if I'm very honest. <laughs> you know, it was very much a technical course where, you know, I've done some soldering, I've done some electronics, I've done some broadcast techniques and TV studio floor stuff, but not really cinematography at all. And editing was like, here, go do your film and now we have to cut it. <laughs> so sort of it was not really part of the curriculum. 
Right. Yeah, but I was really, really lucky because I reached out to a fashion photographer who was working at our uni called Ezidin Alwan, and he really mentored me through my university. And you know, he got me a job in media department in uni, so that got me incredible experience of you know working on fashion shows, working on backstage, doing photography as well with him. And he taught me the basics of what really started my career, and he gave me a portfolio that then enabled me to start working straight away after uni so i was really really lucky in that wow so that was in parallel with your bsc yes i was working during uni ah terrific and why the uk what drew you to studying in the uk specifically it's an interesting one because i think first of all i knew that i don't want to study in poland because as much as educational system on early levels is really incredible or at least was when i was at school university degrees are very very like books oriented and, you know, exams and cramming and not really practical experience. Plus higher education in Poland is free, which is good. But in the same time, the students are kind of treated a bit shit because, you know, you don't pay, so you can't ask for things. So lecturers are making you a favor for you to be there and whatever. Like, yeah, there are quite some stories from my friends who ended up studying back home. So I knew that I don't want to experience and I don't want to study there. And I think there is also this myth of UK being this promised land in a way, uh-huh. you know, there's this glorified version of London, of the parliament and Big Ben. And, but also I went for a trip a couple of times from school and with my friends to London and definitely look fondly on those trips. So that was one of the reasons as well. And how did your family react to you studying abroad? Were they still very supportive of you? And Yeah, they're incredibly supportive. It's quite interesting now speaking to my family, they're like, yeah, we knew you're not going to stay. We had a feeling. (laughs) (laughs) So it wasn't too hard leaving your family and leaving home to come to the UK? Oh, of course it was hard. It was hard for everybody. You know, we just like my family and me, we knew that it's kind of unavoidable. And if I stayed, I wouldn't really be happy and I wouldn't be able to experience life in the same way. And especially creatively, you know, Mm. but yeah, leaving home is always hard, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It must have been good to have a friend to travel with you and to have that experience with. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely much, much easier. And how was it in the UK? Were you happy? Were you pleased with the London experience or was it not what you expected? Yeah, I was very pleased. I mean, the first two months were just definitely harder than we expected. But I think, you know, we definitely underestimated the amount of paperwork and boxes we have to tick to actually start properly living here. You know, you went into this endless loop like, okay, so... We started with getting an Airbnb for two weeks and we thought, okay, in two weeks time, we're going to sort everything out. I'm like, sure shit, you will. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we went through coach surfing and then we ended up living in like a temporary hotel for a bit because we still couldn't find a proper accommodation because you go into this endless loop of, okay, we need to find a job. Okay. To find a job, we need to have this NI number. To get an NI number, you need a permanent address. To get Mm -hmm. a permanent address, you need a bank account. To get a bank account, you need a permanent address. <laughs> You're going through this loop of like, shit, how oh, yeah. do I put this out? <laughs> so did you leave before you knew exactly where each of you was going to go, basically, or what each of you was going to do? Yeah, we kind of went in this like, who got optimistic idea that everything is going to be fine. I mean, I had the uni book, so I knew that. And I had an option of uni accommodation. Hmm. So that was good enough, you know. And then we thought, yeah, it's fine. We're just going to find a job. And we just had, you know, a couple of printed CVs and we just started walking on the high street. But it was really lucky because, like, we found a manager in one of the shops, high street shops, who was Polish. And she was like, okay, for fuck's sake, girls, 
I'm going to help you, but sort your shit out. <laughs> you know, so we were really, really lucky. <laughs> yeah. So you found support with the other migrants, it sounds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And how was uni? Were there, actually, did you easily find a community for you there, whether at uni and in London? I think that's the biggest problem for everybody moving places, isn't it? To find your community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from the start, I knew that I didn't want to be part of, you know, the typically Polish community in England, because like, what's the point of moving to another country if you just stick to people that you kind of left behind, you know? Yeah. Um, I wasn't looking for that experience at all. So I was definitely more open-minded in meeting people from different countries and different communities. I think for me, where I found people was actually theater, because I've done community theater with Old Vic, which was incredible experience and it was my first holiday that I've done this and it was 120 people I think that was part of the community and we've done a show with Old Vic and they've built a temporary theater space in this little park right by Waterloo Mm -hmm. and it was like a whole summer we had the run for three months and it was just absolutely incredible and I still keep in touch with these people and I think that's what made me feel that I belong and that's why you know theater became so important in my life in the UK. Yeah. Mm. So that is what started your relationship with theater and like performances, because you work a lot with theater, physical theater, dance in your film work. Yes. I mean, you know what? I think I've always was interested in theater. When I was, you know, gearing up to move to London, I really wanted to get rid of strong Polish accent because I didn't want to be immediately recognizable where I'm from. Mm. So I was obsessively watching anti-live recordings, theater recordings. And I think, you know, for the first time experiencing being at National and actually watching a show there live after watching so many performances, yeah, that was quite magical, I remember. From there, I started exploring theatre and, you know, I think it's the biggest advantages and the most magical things for me in London, these shows. Seeing, for example, Ralph Fiennes performing in a tiny Almeida theatre as Richard III literally gave me chills. Like, you can't experience this anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So before coming, you already prepared yourself, at least accent-wise, because we know that that is something that a lot of migrants struggle with, basically being, yeah, being judged by their accent or Mm. being categorized by their accent. Yes, you know, I think it's just the awareness of the accent. I had it quite early. I don't think it's a matter of categorizing because I don't mind people knowing that I'm not from here. Like, I'm not trying to shy away from it at all. Like, I'm embracing it. But, you know, I just want to avoid being prejudged based on the image of other people from my country living in here, for example. Mm-hmm. Plus, another thing, I don't necessarily think sometimes people are categorizing you based on the accent. But even I found, being a migrant as well, that if someone has a really, really thick accent, it's a little bit more difficult to communicate freely and quickly and, you know, have a chat. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I have a feeling that that's what people are looking at as well with the whole accent shabang. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. So, Monica, you are part of the BFI network and BAFTA crew. Uh, You've worked across fashion, dance, theatre and commercials for a wide array of clients ranging from the old Vic to new look. Can you tell us a little bit about your very first job and how things developed from there? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was very ballsy. Yeah. (laughs) And I think my philosophy in life would be wing it until you make it. Mm -hmm. so right after graduating I reached out to a couple of producers on Facebook on like you know the networking websites and someone actually replied and that was my first job because 
being asked, can you do this? I would go, yeah, of course I can. And then <laughs> I would spend an evening trying to figure out how the fuck do I do that? <laughs> and I still do that these days. You know, it's great. Like it's super stressful, but it works. And I still work with this company. You know, it's about building relationships in this industry, I think. And was that a job as a GOP? Yes, weirdly enough. So I just winged it. But it was a small commercial little project for, I think it was for Sadler's Wells, actually. Nice. The first job that I've done, it was like a behind the scenes of one of those projects. Yeah, but I still keep working with that company until now. And it's really lovely because, you know, you kind of become friends with the people. I think that's the biggest freelance thing, isn't it? Just building relationships. For sure. And you had a lot of technical knowledge from your BSc mm. and photography from the work you've done in parallel. Mm -hmm. So how did you make the link or when did you start making the link with video and videography and cinematography? I think it came very naturally, you know, because with the work I was doing with Esedin at uni, I was doing both film and photography. And he very much trained my eye on noticing things that other people necessarily wouldn't. And, you know, how can you make this shot more interesting? And I was doing editing of stills at the time as well. So, you know. And being very, very particular about skin tones in the images and, you know, constantly having to redo things. But as much as it was frustrating at the time, now I can really appreciate it because it makes my eye better, the current jobs that I'm doing. But yeah, I think I just naturally got interested in the movement of the camera in particular. I'm not necessarily moving image per se, but I got interested in how can I move to make the image that I'm showing people more interesting. I naturally just floated into the film world more, I think. Hmm. I mean, that was sort of my next question, which you've perfectly answered, <laughs> which is your focus being mainly on fluid movement. And I watched Figure a couple of years ago. I mean, you just capture dance so beautifully and it really feels like you're dancing with the dancers and with your camera. It's just really extraordinary. Well, thank you. Well, speaking of figure, it was your debut short, and it's mm -hmm. an experimental dance film about boys growing up without fathers, directed and choreographed by Lanre Malau. It has won multiple awards, including the new Renaissance Film Festival and the Lights Dance Film Festival, as well as qualifying at the BAFTA Qualifying in Aesthetica. And you've shot a couple more films with Lanre since. So can you tell us about how this collaboration came about and what your experience was like shooting figure. Sure. As these days is the modern age, you would not believe, but Lana reached out to me on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because he was part of the Old Vic mentoring program. I don't remember what it's called now. And I was part of the Old Vic community company that was kind of the link that brought us together. Right. And yeah, he reached out to me and we just met. And it was a very interesting beginning because it was his first film as well as mine. Mm -hmm. So we kind of went into this journey of like, cool, we have no money, let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it was a beautiful discovery. And I think the relationship we have now is something really special. And he's an incredible artist. I love working with him because we have a very fun relationship, but also we have a lot of trust. And I think that's what's incredibly important with any sort of creative work. Mm. But yeah, figure was a lot of fun. I think we both learn a lot. I mean, I definitely did. And I think whenever I shoot any sort of dance and movement pieces, it showed me how important pre-production is. We literally, he shot the rehearsal footage and we went through it minute by minute and planned exactly what the camera movements are going to be. Right. Okay. Because it feels so spontaneous and improvised, but it's not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, parts of it are improvised. 
because you know it was like end of the day end of the shoot everybody was knocking they were like okay fuck it let's just run a whole thing yeah and actually we ended up using a lot of that last take mm. because you know the dancers learn and me as a camera i've learned the movement as well and kind of became more natural to flow around it mm-hmm. so it's always something that i like doing like if we have time okay let's just shoot it as it is straight and let's see what happens yeah you've kind of sort of grown into it and yeah you can be freer with it could you tell us more about the Oldvik programs that brought the two of you together as well? I mean, we haven't actually done them together. They were separate things. I've done just like a community theater. Mm-hmm. It was Oldvik Community Company. Unfortunately, they stopped doing it because of funding, which is a real shame. Oh. But it brought together people from completely different backgrounds, different ages. You didn't have to have anything to do with theater. It just taught us from scratch. I was part of the lighting design team. Someone was acting, someone was dancer, someone was doing sound. So it really, really did bring a lot of skill sets and a lot of learning together and real real friendships, really. I think we should really push to have more programs like this because they are incredibly important for everybody. And they bring people together that wouldn't necessarily ever meet in real life. Absolutely. Yeah, that sounds like such a wonderful initiative. I hope they bring it back maybe in a slightly different form, but bring back something similar. Yeah. The other film you shot with Lanre is his documentary short, The Circle, which is a bold and lyrical portrayal of two brothers living on a hackneyed council estate. It was also selected at numerous festivals, including the Sheffield Dog Fest Encounters and the Linden Short Film Festival, and it premiered online at The Guardian. So what was your process like on this project, given that it was a documentary? That project was something really special, and it definitely went into places and opened the doors I would not expect it to. Mm. It was interesting. So Lanra came to me with the proposal, and I kind of was involved with it very early conversations as well. I was always interested in documentaries, so I was really happy to be able to shoot it. And the process was quite interesting because we first interviewed those boys. And Lanra always knew that that will be the starting point of everything because at the end of the day, it's their story. Mm-hmm. So we shot the interviews and from there he went and watched them and listened to them and that informed his choreography. Mm-hmm. And it was really fascinating to watch because he dissected the movement of their hands and the gestures and turned that into the movement and dance. So that was incredible. I watched it and you can really see and feel that and it's just such an inventive idea. Yeah, he's an incredible, incredible artist. I'm, I'm really excited to watch where he's going to go next, you know? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, then we planned, based on those choreographies, we again dissected the movement and matched it with the camera, more or less. But I think with these, because it was funded by the BFI Doc Society, we had a timeline that we had to match, so we didn't have quite as long as we would want to plan it. So a fair bit of stuff was improvised on the day in terms of the camera movement, at least. So we shot the dance sequences and then, oh, wait, before that, actually, we went on the estates and we did a classic recce of finding the locations, finding the places, you know, clearing mm-hmm. whether we are allowed to film there or not and all the practical shaban. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then we shot it and then there was the incredible editing process madness of editing the whole film in boxes which is completely nuts (laughs) yeah I saw that I thought that was just so ingenious I just really enjoyed watching sort of different aspects of the shoot like that so was that your idea was that Lanre's or both together I think it was Lanra's idea, yeah. But it was definitely the most unusual and challenging edit that I've ever done, that's for sure. 
but it was also really fun playing around with images of what works with what. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of fun. But yeah, in the same time, it was very, very, it was mad. <laughs> yeah. And you've edited both those shorts, figure and the circle. Yes, yeah. yeah. Do you still edit most of your work or a lot of your work? I've edited a lot of my work, yeah. It's interesting. I have a feeling whenever I say to people that I do both, it's always like, oh, really? (laughs) I feel like it's not a usual thing for people. Uh, It's something interesting someone said to me that I need to be careful on how I promote myself, you know, and how I have stuff on my website because I can be treated not seriously if I do both things and promote myself in both things. Mm. But in the same time, I'm like, you know what? I don't really care because if someone likes my work, they like my work. They don't really care about my website. You know what I mean? Yeah. And because I enjoy doing both of them, why should I decide? You know, I don't like the, you know, the going boxes. Yeah, you have two amazing skill sets. And also, like, I recently listened to Julie Delpy on a podcast, and she edits most of her films, mm. which she writes and directs and produces and acts in. So there you go. Yeah, it's <laughs> not how reductive it is. Something like that, when I see it, I find that's a strength. Mm. And when some other people will look at that and think, oh. It kind of dilutes. Yeah, and see it as a diluted thing rather than a strength. I think there is a fine line, to be honest. Yeah. Mm. Because if you have, for example, a director who edits as well, there is a risk of being too close to the picture. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you really, really need a second eye to see that. So I, as well, need to be really careful not to be too precious about the image, you know, when, when I'm editing things. Sometimes, yeah, I love that scene, but it needs to go. Because it doesn't tell the story it needs to tell. Yeah. You know, so Mm. there is always a risk of being too close to it if you're doing more than one thing. But I think as long as people are aware of that, then why not? (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of about how you learn to juggle it all. And do you find it influences how you film on the days of shooting? 100%. Mm. 100%. I find it very useful to be able to put my editor's hat on on set sometimes. Because sometimes there are moments of, I don't know, actor not being in a role necessarily, just sitting there. And I'm just telling my focus puller to just go sharp on the eyes and stuff. And I'm just shooting some B-roll because I know that it might be useful, even though no one asked me to do. Mm. And then in the edit, we're like, oh, shoot, we actually really needed that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so there are these little things that you can predict or, you know, kind of the rhythm of the edit. And mm. I definitely found it useful with the camera movement. A lot of camera operators, at least the ones who work with like concerts and gigs and TV, they count bars of music, for example, mm-hmm. to time the camera movement. And for me, I don't really count beats because I'm absolutely fucking awful and terrible with music. I cannot hear anything. <laughs> oh my God, I'm the same. <laughs> to the point, like my husband, he plays guitar and he's like showing me some things and like, did you hear? And I'm like, yes, maybe, did I? <laughs> <laughs> So I can't count bars, actually. Yeah. But because I edit, I can feel the rhythm of the editing in the shots. Mm. So I'm kind of, you know, justified being absolutely tone deaf with my editing vibe and rhythms, you know. So I think that's a good save. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. As I said, you dance really beautifully in your film. You mentioned various programs that support new artists and mentorships. Could you talk about some of these that have been uh, useful to you? And maybe if you have any advice for people who want to find a way into those mentorships, what would you tell them? In terms of mentorship, I genuinely found it quite surprising at my university as well, how open people were to just help me. It was just enough to ask. We had these like career fairs and stuff and I got like a week long work experience in a production company just because I asked, you know, Mm -hmm. 
And then again, I a couple of times I emailed the photographer and he just replied and he was like, sure, I'm going to teach you. I was really, really surprised on how willing people are to just help out, you know. And even now where I'm kind of working in the industry already, there is so many opportunities for filmmakers who are not necessarily that experienced. Like if you think about it, BFI Doc Society doesn't require you to have any films made beforehand before application no. or like BFI funding you have something called Skillshare where they are running free sessions training sessions on making films and editing programs and stuff so I genuinely think there is so much opportunities from organization per se mm-hmm. but also like I'm a very strong believer of like if you like someone's work cool message them nothing is gonna happen if you don't message them you know if they don't reply okay fuck them they didn't reply (laughs) but if they do you might get a great conversation with them on zoom these days and just you know get a mentor yeah i reach out to people on instagram and we just had a chat and you know i got an advice that i needed honestly Mm. people would be really surprised how willing people are to help So you're part of the BFI BAFTA crew, as we mentioned. Can you actually tell us how that came about? Did you apply for it? How did you apply for it? And how's it been being part of that? Yeah, so it's the second year in a row that I'm part of the BFI BAFTA crew. I think it's great, great organization. I've applied for it. You have to apply. There is an application process they open every year. And it's a year-long mentoring for young talents. And you have to have at least two, I think, at least two broadcast credits but anyway, there are informations on the website. And yeah, before lockdown, they were organizing a lot of networking events and roundtable discussions and meetings with famous filmmakers that would mentor us. And it was like for literally everybody. It was from you know cinematography, editing, hair and makeup, directing. So every single aspect of filmmaking was covered. And yeah, I think it's it's fantastic, you know, because not only does that give you access to knowledge that is quite selective and quite, you know, I guess, hard to come by. But also it builds quite a beautiful, really, relationships with people. And because everybody there have to have some sort of experience to belong to the BAFTA crew, you kind of have a guarantee that you are in the same or similar sort of level. So it's so much easier to collaborate with people and to find work and, you know, even just relationships, you know, sometimes it's just nice to send somebody a script and ask, what do you think? Mm. So, yeah, it's great for community as well. So, yeah, for anybody, just apply because it's really, really good. It's great. Great. Yeah. So what would you say have been the greatest challenge and then the greatest highlight of your career so far? Oh, it's always a difficult one, isn't it? Yeah. I think like the greatest challenge, I'm tempted to say that every new project becomes my greatest challenge. Mm -mm. But I think it's a good thing because that's the growth, isn't it? If you don't feel slightly uncomfortable with doing the new projects, you're not going to grow and you're not going to learn. Yes, I think... I think, yeah, every single film, there's always something that is new to me and it's it's fantastic, you know, there's the journey of it. And in terms of the greatest highlight, again, you would say the most recent film, really. But on the other hand, I think the greatest highlight would be The Circle yeah. because it led to so many places and to so many things. Like, you know, I went to film festivals, I met people that led to other projects. Mm. Someone saw it on The Guardian and they phoned me up and then that led to another project. But also the growth and the journey of the circle. And to be honest, working with Lana as well, the mutual growth and the support that we have together, that's definitely a highlight. So yeah, that's a beautiful thing. And so can you tell us about some of your upcoming projects that the circle basically led you on to? Yeah, so I've been really, really busy in lockdown, which was a big surprise. And I know I'm really lucky. 
I've shot to film 60-minute films for BBC, which was definitely a big step up and very, very interesting projects. And again, someone just saw the circle on The Guardian and they reached out to me, you know, and then first project led to the second one because they like what I've done. So that's that's incredible. So the first film is called Half Breed, written and performed by Natasha Marshall and directed by Miranda Cromwell for Soho Theatre on iPlayer and BBC4. And we shot the play over three days in the theatre, but definitely not in your classical anti-live way of locked off cameras because mm. I think that's a bit deadly for stage shows mm-hmm. we kept it very live very you know cameras are moving quite a lot we tried to give it a cinematic language as much as possible so that's this really exciting one and the second film is called Harm and it's for Bush Theatre and that's a very interesting hybrid that initially it's a script for a stage and it will be performed in Bush whenever theatres open. Mm-hmm. But it was filmed as a film on location. Oh. And it's a monologue. And I think it's a very, very interesting fusion of film and theatre together. And I'm very, very excited for it to be out and for people to see it. Because I don't think I've seen stage plays done in that way before. Mm. Can you reveal a little bit about the approach or is that? Sure, I can. Yeah. So basically the play is about an estate agent woman who goes into a rabbit hole of obsession. Let me just say that. (laughs) And because of that, we kind of felt that it's appropriate to take her out of stage and put her in a house. And we were incredibly lucky because we got access to a beautiful architectural house near Brighton that just kept on giving the most beautiful visuals for us. And it's a monologue which goes directly to camera. So that's another thing that is quite unusual about it. Mm-hmm. The actress, she interacts with the camera. You know, there's no shying away from that. That's why it's a very interesting fusion between film and theatre, because in reality, in film, you would avoid the eye contact as much as possible, mm-hmm. apart from feedback. Um, <laughs> but in here, we constantly are being spoken to as an audience. And it's, I think it's a very powerful way of storytelling to completely break the boundary. You know, it's kind of a mixture of the theatre experience where you experience a connection with the actor and film where it's very cinematic. You know, you have tracking shots, you have close-ups, the performance is a lot more intimate. I think it's a very exciting one. Excellent. Very exciting. Yeah, I'm intrigued to see that. I think we're all at the moment very interested in new ways of playing around with the mediums that we've had so far. And I wondered, like, for you personally, has this way of working remotely that we're currently engaged in and obviously seeing each other over camera a lot, has that changed your method at all or sort of opened your eyes to new things that may be possible? It's a good question. I think at the beginning of lockdown, where suddenly all of my projects got cancelled, which was very frustrating. I feel like I tried to find a way of staying creative and shooting things and doing things over Zoom and, you know, playing around with Zoom films and stuff. But then very quickly I realized that it's not satisfying, you know, like Mm. for directors and for writers, it's better because they can still write, they can still create, they can still direct. But from cinematography point of view, whatever you shoot on Zoom is going to look shit. Like, let's face it. (laughs) like as much as I can tell somebody where to put their house lamp it's not gonna look good (laughs) (laughs) so I very quickly gave up on the idea in terms of you know like (laughs) distant filming but on the other hand for me 
the lockdown led into another array of filming that I wasn't expecting to come my way, which is uh, theater filming, you know, because suddenly theaters started to experimenting and being a lot more willing to try out film as a medium. So I found that interesting. And, you know, I started experimenting with multi-camera recording for the Soho film and how can we make it more interesting and more engaging. I kind of noticed that the usual theater recordings before lockdown were very static and kind of played safe in a way. Mm. And I think as far as I know, they've been shot in a way that, you know, they're doing first hour of the play, the cameras are rolling and they're just doing their own thing and recording. Whereas where we filmed stuff for Soho, we broke it down scene by scene to the point that the actress, she knew at which point she's addressing camera A, which point she's addressing camera B and the camera is moving around her and we are suddenly started not shying away from showing the auditorium and, you know, showing the backstage. So I think theatres in particular became more bold and open to experimentation. And I think that's the exciting development from the lockdown. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. So you've worked in the UK quite a number of years on various projects that we've heard about. Big picture stuff, but what is your impression of the UK film scene? And do you have a sense of how it compares to those in other cultures? Hmm. I think UK film industry is very lucky in the way it works and particularly how it's funded. I mean, I know I can only compare with Poland really and still it is quite a limited experience because I haven't actually worked in the film industry in Poland personally. But from what I know in the UK, the funding is a lot more accessible and a lot more accessible for people who are new to this. Mm. I feel like there is quite a lot of mentoring available on a very early career stage, which is incredible. I think the only thing I would say the UK film industry is missing for me is the mid-level stuff. You know, you mm. have opportunities for people starting out, which is fantastic, don't get me wrong. But then you've done your first two, three films, shorts, and then suddenly there is like a big gap of opportunities. And then you have to have an agent and you can do feature films and TV drama. Mm-hmm. But there's a big gap of like, so how do you get to the big TV drama? You need to meet someone who is actually going to trust you without having any big production under your belt. Mm-hmm. with an opportunity so I think there is the mid-level stuff that is slightly missing but yeah other than that like you know even the, the COVID response and the rescue packages for arts in the UK I know that a lot of people are gonna say like oh but it's been too little too late but at least it's been something <laughs> you mm. know yeah. how many countries around the world didn't get anything mm. so how have you found it working as a migrant in this industry do you find that the industry is receptive to migrant artists And do you feel that sort of diversity of background is reflected off screen? I'm not sure if I'm honest. I feel like it's particularly for the film industry and working behind the camera. I don't think it matters to anybody where you're from. Mm -hmm. You know, I think being a migrant, you can approach that in three different ways. You can either try to hide it and that's going to stop you from getting work. You can either embrace it and be just like, yeah, hey, ho, I'm a migrant, so what? I'm going to just do my job and be good at it. And the third way, you can just make it your strength and sell it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it really, really depends on people and their approach to that, whether it's going to help them or stop them from doing things. And do you feel that there's one approach that you have sort of adopted or do you feel that you've flitted between them at different times? I think I flip between them. It's either just embracing it and like not really caring if I'm honest like I don't really care 
that I'm a migrant, you know, it doesn't, I don't feel like it changes my life in any significant sort of way. Or I use it as my strength, particularly because some people in film industry are quite aware of like a Polish cinematic school. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it can be seen that I'm kind of part of that school and the visual language and the aesthetic. And I don't actually know if I am. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm not sure. I like my own thing. I do my own thing. But there is a high chance that I am influenced by the stuff I watched, you know, where I grew up and stuff. There probably is the case, you know, anyway. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's just there in me and the fact that I'm from Poland or I'm not from Poland or from someone else doesn't really change the fact that this is what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you feel that there are any practical barriers to migrants working sort of in behind the scenes or technical roles? I know that we've discussed accents. Mm. Do you see these particular hurdles that people have to deal with? I mean, the pronouncing of the name is always a funny one. I always make a game out of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always joke about it because it's just, you know, my last name has like what 12 or 13 letters and it's just like literally unpronounceable for an English person so I just give them first four letters of my last name I'm just like yeah it's very long like don't worry about it (laughs) (laughs) you know and again if someone asks me where I'm from I'm saying guess Mm. you know and Mm. it's a quite a fun game because first of all it makes people realize that like why did I ask in the first place oh shit I shouldn't have done that (laughs) or on the other hand it's kind of fun for me as well to just like hear the options of where people try to place my accent (laughs) yeah I'm kind of quite chilled about it the whole migrant thing in the industry I guess I think it's also from the perspective that I've kind of expected to encounter difficulties specifically also because of my woman I guess in a camera Mm. department Mm. so maybe I just don't see it because of that (laughs) you Mm. know the the migrant aspect but yeah I don't think I really encounter any sort of problems because of where I'm from Can you tell us a little more about that, about being a woman in a camera department? I mean, it is sort of stereotypically, our image of it is a very sort of male-dominated space. Has that been your experience and how has that been for you? Yeah, pretty much. Whenever I start a new job, it's always like someone, at least one person says, oh, it's so good to have a female DP. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so that's kind of nice. But in the same time, it just paints the picture, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like industry is slowly but surely changing. I think a lot of women are a little bit intimidated by the size of the equipment and, you know, all that. But, you know, there is a Steadicam vest and Easyrig vest that has been modified for a woman body shape now. Mm. You know, the Mm. industry is slowly but surely changing. And I think it's up to us as well on how we approach that, you know, like whenever I have a chance to find my own crew, I always try to at least have it equal, 50-50. You know, I want to give fellow women a chance to be on set because it's up to us, people who can choose the team, the producers, the directors, to make sure that we are a well-balanced crew. Mm-hmm. And it actually really makes a difference on set, I think. Sets that are very, really laddy tend to be slightly more stressful, I guess. Mm-hmm. I know, for me, I found it quite interesting dynamic to have equal amount or more women on set. Mm-hmm. I've done a commercial for Treatwell where the crew was 100% female. It was a very fun experience and the producers were very surprised because we finished before time and it was like super official. I was like, see, fucking told you. (laughs) (laughs) So we've touched on this a bit in terms of the effects of lockdown creatively and also the sort of government response for the arts. But how has the last year been for you? How has the pandemic impacted you and how has lockdown treated you? You know what? It's going to sound crazy, but I actually enjoyed the first lockdown. <laughs> I relate. I understand that. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, obviously, there's been this massive frustration of losing work because I had quite a few films lined up for this year. So that was very frustrating. But after taking a breath and finding out myself in this weird situation, I started to really enjoy the break, mm. especially like you know, the weather was lovely. So I ended up <laughs> sitting on my windowsill and sunbathing, which was quite hilarious to everybody around me, but I didn't really care much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, discovered a different pace of life. And I think it puts life in perspective, you know, mm. of what you actually enjoy doing and how much time you're willing to spend on projects and how much time you're willing to spend on yourself. Mm. I started reading a lot of books again. I started painting again because suddenly I think a lot of people found themselves in the suspense of boredom. And that was definitely new for me because I was, apart from work, and I was always in theater and meeting people and doing things and going to art galleries and suddenly you're just there. But mm. looking back at it, I think it's quite fascinating what happens where people are left to their own devices because suddenly you're going to go back and rediscover your old passions or maybe you're going to start something new. And I think boredom is good overall because it also leads you into appreciation of your day-to-day -day life that you kind of took for granted. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think for so many people, the different lockdowns have each been different in terms mm -hmm. of how they've responded. You said that the first one felt like it opened up this opportunity to take a bit of a pause. How have you found the most recent one? So we were lucky in that in the summer, me and my husband, we, we actually drove to Poland. So that was 18 hours in a car, which I do not recommend. However, <laughs> <laughs> however, we spent beautiful two months in the mountains, you know, going onto the lake, hiking, being with my family it was a really beautiful time. Mm. Spending time with people you care about and stuff. This lockdown has been definitely much harder for me because it's kind of like, I think everybody kind of wants to get on with life at this stage. Mm -hmm. I think the hardest part is not having human interaction. Mm -hmm. Like I personally hate Zoom so much. Even, yeah. you know, working on pre-production for those two BBC films, I feel like we got stripped of so much joy and so much interaction fun of pre-production. Mm -hmm. Of course it's work, you know, but in the same time, going into rehearsal room, having the conversations about how we're going to shoot it, how we're going to light it, how we want it to look like, you know, all those conversations are not as engaging on Zoom at all. Mm. Yeah. There's definitely something I was missing. You know, the whole Christmas lockdown as well. We were going to spend Christmas, like Polish style Christmas with my best friend and they ended up catching COVID. So I still have mm -hmm. like two kilograms of Polish fish frozen. <laughs> <laughs> For next Christmas. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, this one has been a bit grim. Mm. Yeah. But on the other hand, I was lucky enough to keep busy. Mm. But I definitely can't wait. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. But it seems like it's getting better and better, you know. It <laughs> is the light at the end. Of yeah, each day. <laughs> so you've sort of touched on this, but the word migrant obviously encompasses such a broad range of experiences and backgrounds and something we're really interested when we're having these discussions is just to reflect on that because obviously by virtue of the title of this podcast and speaking to the people we speak to there's sort of an underlying assumption that there are maybe common strands of experience but do you think we can speak of a shared migrant identity and if so what is that? <laughs> I don't know if I'm honest with you I don't know if I would call it an identity because personally I wouldn't my first reaction wouldn't be to identify myself as a migrant. Yes, of course, I'm living in another country, 
but I don't think it would be a first word I would describe myself as. Mm -hmm. So I think more than an identity would be rather be approach to life. Mm. Obviously, everybody leaves your own country for different reasons and there are different stories. But I think the common thing would be hunger for experiences and, you know, having a wider, hopefully having a wider perspective and like openness to the world and various experiences. Mm. It's quite interesting because I find myself having more migrant friends than English friends. Mm. It's not because I choose to at all, like at all. You know, I have friends from New Zealand, I have friends from Lithuania, so from all of the different countries. But I feel like there is a little bit more the thread of understanding, but also what I found is the openness for more meaningful conversations. Right. You know, willingness to share the experience because I feel like people who move to another country are craving the relationships more. Because if mm. you think about it, if you stayed where you were born and you went to school, you always have your school friends. You're always surrounded by your family, by people you know. Mm. But suddenly if you move, you are craving those connections. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I think to go more into your question, it's more about approach to life and how you want to experience it rather than an identity, I think, for me at least. Mm. Okay, interesting. Like a kind of hunger for something, something indefinable almost. Yeah, I think so. And also, you know, it's the comparison, I guess, of life. So how your life was and how it is now, mm. how it was in your country, how it's in this country. Mm. Yeah. And that's the common ground, yeah. Mm. yeah. So... What was your experience of the UK during the Brexit vote and following that as an EU migrant? Well, definitely the first reaction was absolute disbelief. <laughs> you know, shocked but not surprised. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've had quite interesting conversations with people and a lot of people felt unwelcomed. And it's interesting because I guess you definitely can feel that. But because I'm London-based, London had such a strong response against Brexit that that gave me hope. Plus, I, after watching a couple of documentaries and trying to understand who voted Brexit and why did it happen, I'm kind of understanding people's frustration. As much as this frustration was direct in the wrong direction, by far, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I kind of understand where it's coming from, you know, because you can see it everywhere in Europe and US that People are turning more right wing because they can see that they are losing relevance and that, you know, no one cares about them. So they just mm. want to change. I don't think they know what the change was supposed to be, unfortunately, mm. because, you know, people in power are clever. But yeah, it was just surprising that Brexit happened, you know. But in the same time, I live here. This is my home now, in a way. So, you know, I'm not going to fuck off. <laughs> you know i'm applying for a passport now so there you go <laughs> amazing right when you hear the word home what comes to mind i think home is fluid you know we live in a fluid world everything changes i think home is dependent on location <laughs> you know if I'm <laughs> here if i'm in the uk i refer to home as poland when i'm home uh, and I talk to my family, for example, I sometimes sleep like, oh, you know, at home I have this. Mm. Yeah. So I think very much dependent of where I am. But also, I feel like for a lot of people, like if you live in multiple countries, you know, for me, it's just Poland and England. But if people live in the multiple places, I feel like you leave peace of home behind you everywhere you go. Mm -hmm. Because suddenly you build home. You know, I don't think home is one place. I think you build your own home. I think the original home is the one you think of the fondest, hopefully, and the one you have most memories of. 
and you are, you know, the most related to and, you know, love the most, I guess. But then whatever you spend more time, you build your own home and it's different and it's never going to be the same. But I think it's equally as valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. So you've lived in the UK quite a while. How has living here impacted your sense of identity? Do you recognize British traits in yourself? <laughs> I drink tea with milk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, what is British anyway these days, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like, it's such an interesting question. I would say a Londoner more than anything else, I guess. Yeah. Mm. I know my work allowed me to travel around UK quite a lot and see places and meet people I wouldn't normally. And I can definitely tell that England isn't a unified country, both based on people's experiences of living in different parts of the UK, but also of, you know, approach to life and all of that. So, yeah, I think London, maybe the excitement about experiences and art. And I think I developed curiosity about different cultures. I definitely developed curiosity and willingness to learn about different cultures, different, you know, races and the multiculturalism of England. Mm -hmm. So I think that definitely changed. Am I more British? I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so. No, I think I'm definitely different. I definitely think differently, even compared to the friends back home. Mm. More multicultural. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which I love. So what of your characteristics do you think is the most stereotypically British and what do you think is the least? I'm going to start from the least. <laughs> I'm definitely very bold and I have no filter. Like <laughs> a couple of people already said that to me, like, you know, they would expect someone to say like, oh, I'm not, this idea is good, but I'm not sure if it's going to work. And I'm just like, yeah, no, it's shit, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Either people like it or hate it, like, let's be honest, but... I don't know. I don't like tiptoeing around issues. Like I'm quite honest mm-hmm. and I don't really mind honesty back. Like I definitely prefer people to tell me straight if something is wrong mm-hmm. rather than pretend everything is fine and then talk behind my back or something. So sure. yeah, I'm definitely quite bold. And I know that I offended people in the past by being bold. And I'm very <laughs> sorry for that. But... <laughs> oh, and the most British, I would say I smile and I'm positive outside because i you know what the first time i came back to poland i found it quite shocking that people are so fucking grumpy Mm. (laughs) like on the street like you know there is no i mean i know where it's coming from it's coming from you know the whole communist uh, idea Mm. that everybody can spy on you and the whole paranoia and the Mm -hmm. political shaban going on Mm. but it surprised me by the difference i actually saw because in here like you know people are just i guess happy and like smiley and would chat to you and you know you can pet their dog and it's great you know Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah but back home I actually noticed that it's definitely not the case like if you would smile at someone she would be like oh what does she want from me like is she like selling something <laughs> <laughs> yeah I really I spent some time in Moscow and I really felt that mm-hmm. but it was interesting like once they do open up to you then they're the most warm-hearted yeah but there's that facade at first mm, exactly yeah. mm-hmm. you know and in England I guess you get the facade of politeness Yes. Yeah. You know, I think every country has a bit of their own little thing going on. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I was always quite cheerful, but I think, yeah, I got more cheerful towards strangers. <laughs> mm. 
And it's all relative, isn't it? Because when I'm in the US, I'm like, why are people in stores so friendly? Like, <laughs> you end up sharing your life story with oh, your barista God. or something, and <laughs> which you just don't do in London. And I don't know no. why that is. And also, even in other parts of the UK, like I studied in the North, and mm. the people there seem so much friendlier compared to people on the mm. street in London. So I'm always surprised when people <laughs> say that people in London seem friendly. Because yeah. I'm like, are they? But yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah it's true because from like people who we've interviewed from like South America, for example, they have like the opposite experience in a way. Mm. Yeah, where well, they had to rein it in. Well, they had to rein it in, yeah. <laughs> but coming from Switzerland, I'm like you, like the mm. friendliness of people here is something that really, that I fell in love with and that I really appreciated. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So our final question is... What are your hopes for the future, both for yourself and for society? I think for the society, I just hope that the world won't become narrow-minded because we are in a tendency of boxing people in and even the shit you see on Facebook is literally narrowed down to the stuff you like. And we suddenly getting into the world of very single-minded people, not open to other point of views and that scares me Mm. i hope that people will become more curious about the world and will be able to be a critical thinkers because i think that's going to be very important in the future to be able to determine what the world is trying to push up on us and what are our own decisions Mm. and i think it's going to become more and more difficult to distinguish the two plus with the pandemic going on you know hopefully going away i hope that we are not going to go into crisis and i hope that you know, actually, there is a book by Yuri Harari, 21 Lessons for 21st Century. And he painted a picture of people fighting for relevance. You know, mm. in the past, people were fighting for workers' rights in factories. And now he predicts that we're going to be fighting for relevance, to be relevant to society. And I hope that's not going to be the case. But in the same time, if you look closely, you can already see it. You know, why did Brexit happen? Because people wanted to be relevant. Mm. People wanted something to change because they felt like nothing was coming for them. Mm. So yeah, I hope that society is going to go in the right place, in the right direction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. Yeah, and in terms of me, I just hope that, you know, I'm going to keep exploring the world and the work and keep going the way I'm going. I try not to put unnecessary pressure on the future. I think it's more important to take care of now and here and you know obviously try to reach out and do whatever you can do for future but I try not to hold too many pressures on myself on what the future should be Mm. Mm. yeah what's very healthy approach (laughs) I try yeah (laughs) it's not always easy but it's definitely the way to go very true thank you (laughs) really great to listen to what your journey has been so far and yeah just wishing you all the very best for what's ahead and just uh, excited to see more of your work thank you thank you it was lovely thank you guys to find out more about monica and her work check out the links in this episode's show notes you've been listening to migratives a podcast produced by woven voices Migratives is created and hosted by Nadia Cavell, Zachary Fall, and Ben Weaver-Hanks. Our music is by Guy Hughes, and our artwork is designed by Lucy Stapleton-Smith. 
To support the podcast, you can rate, review, and subscribe on the platform of your choice. And to find out more about our work, follow Woven Voices on social media or check out our website, wovenvoices.org.